at an anthropological conference on the Afro-Diasporic Orisha uh, religion in Brazil, um, there was also attendances, attendance of priestesses of this religion. Uh, and I distinctly remember this old priesthood who said in her squeaky old voice, Os antropologos fala muito coco, which means anthropologists just talk so much nonsense. And there was this sort of low rustle of laughter uh, through all the anthropologists who generally agree, you know. But this book, this motherfucking book, it's really a case of anthropologists saying stuff that so makes sense. And what is more, like while these guys are, I think, using it quite Eurocentric ways of thinking, to really, really make sense, I think it is one of the most monumental attempts at unwhitewashing history and that I've ever seen, subverting the foundational self-image of basically uh, Occidental civilization. This is a review of uh, The Dawn of Everything by uh, David Graeber and um, David Wengrow. So while this book teaches us about our history and our roots as peoples, as Europeans, as Atlantic Westerners and as human beings, it also gives a kind of uh, backdrop knowledge, I think, for how contemporary progressive understandings of the world can be used to be constructive rather than just deconstructive. I think it's an absolutely amazing work, uh, and uh, Graeber and Wengro, they're being so musungu in their way of thinking, like totally. They're creating a grand narrative of everything, you know? <laughs> and perhaps it also makes a difference that I'm listening to it in, in, in an audio uh, book where this voice just makes me totally think about this Key and Peel sketch about old-timey anthropologists. Sounds like this. The disconnect is so profound that some archaeologists have begun taking the opposite tack, describing Ice Age Europe as populated by hierarchical or even stratified societies. And this thing about building a grand narrative is something that most scholars today actually don't do. And I think part of the simple reason is that they don't have the intellectual capacity to pro process the enormous amount of knowledge that is available today, um, and, and it, which means that most scholars don't speak outside these extremely arcane, narrow fields. But these guys do. They have somehow worked over the knowledge of everything that pertains to human culture. An intellectual feat that makes you swoon thinking about it. And then they write about everything for the purpose of understanding, not some super limited question, but in order to get at the really, really big questions. What is power? What is freedom? What is inequality? What is domination? What is political agency? What is matriarchy? What is value? What is money? What is ownership? Where does all these things come from, right? They worked on this book for 10 years, and then Graeber died before it was, it was finished. So it has been published uh, posthumously. And now, you know, I, I just called them 
<laughs> Eurocentric, and perhaps they are in their methodology. You know, this whole idea of, of speaking from an, a disinterested, observing objectivity that can tell you the grand tale about everything. Uh, it's, it's so whitey, you know. But I'm telling you, this shit is a red pill against Eurocentrism to a large extent. It does have a little bit of a problem. That is that it's, it misses an animist perspective a little bit. But I'll just leave that out because the rest of it is so bloody interesting. <laughs> the lens they put on things, you know, that brings you through this an enormous swath of human history. Many history books, you know, they would start with ancient Sumer in Mesopotamia. They spent half of the book arriving at ancient Sumer, you know. I think that what they say has profound consequences for how we perceive stuff like political activism in relation to traditionalism. How do we perceive our political systems as inherent to Occidental culture? In the context of this channel here, Nordic Animism, one important implication is how we think about traditionalism or traditional knowledge being traditional. You know? The important point that they make is that Traditional thinking, traditional knowledge is not a state. It's not some stasis of dwelling in some dreamlike, machine-like, mythological work where everything, world where everything is sort of connected, as a lot of uh, modernists have imagined. The traditional as an opposition to the modern with its critical rationalism and debating parliamentarism and pragmatic ways of figuring out, of, out stuff, you know, even activism. Traditional culture is, in fact, all those things. In fact, it's perhaps even more those things than, than a lot of modern culture. Uh, humans in traditional societies, for instance, indigenous societies, are very politically engaged. They're very conscious about how and why they organize their societies, in what ways, you know. And um, very, uh, they're very active about... Uh, also regularly changing the way that they organize their societies. There's a lot of change going on. Often they change it in ways that seem to contradict our prejudice about how uh, human evolution is supposed, to, is supposed to work. Often people seem to say, oh, well, now we don't want to live in a city-state anymore. I think we'll just go and be nomad pastoralists. That's a pretty normal thing that humans regularly decide throughout history. So... Uh, so here you go, uh, and are you ready for the red pill here? <laughs> First, there are no predestined patterns in how human societies structure themselves. We don't move from hunter-gatherer bands, similar to the booty pygmies, towards more organized communities like anthropologists have always imagined. Bands, then tribes, then chiefdoms, then states, and perhaps then uh, at some point a global civilization. Anthropologists have been telling each other, or we have been telling each other, that we aren't evolutionists anymore, but we just avoided the basic questions that evolutionism answers. If you read uh, the people who try to address those questions, then they tend to fall back on evolutionist schemes. You find this in people like Yuval Harari or Jared Diamond. And these guys, they give an alternative uh, to the evolutionist scheme. Uh, like, primarily, Western civilization is not the end of history, which a guy like, for instance, the conservative thinker Jordan Peterson would totally imagine, that we live in the best of all worlds, the best that humanity has ever created. Uh, 
the least tyrannical, to use uh, Peterson's terminology, the one where we have realized the perfect balance between the individual freedoms and the common good, actually, no. You know, we might have figured out some stuff, uh, but there are other eras and people too, you know, and they have certainly figured out, for instance, stuff like freedom at a very, very high degree in some, uh, some other eras. Wengro and uh, Graeber, they have looked at the most updated archaeology and research on everything in the past. Not only Sumer and Mesopotamia, like any old history books, but also all the shit that you never heard about. The princely burials in the deep Mesolithic Europe and the Ukrainian megasite towns and the Jomon civilization in Japan and pre-Chan cities in China that you never dreamed about even existed. The apparently almost social democrat building initiatives of Teotihuacan, the Olmecs, the pre-Inca Chawin, the Republic of the Mexican Tascalteca, ancient Egypt gets a good little grind, you know, and uh, in all this they are updated with contemporary uh, research. Uh, they look at the amazing mega sites of po- Poverty Point uh, in uh, North America, probably one of the biggest enigmas of archaeology. They look at the lost Mississippian civilization of Cahokia, which was suddenly ab- abandoned. And I'm going to tell you about Cahokia in a little while, and it'll blow your mind. Um, and uh, wh- when you look at everything in this way, you find that human don't, humans don't follow a set pattern of, for instance, evolution. Wengro and Graeber, they point out that we have trouble not seeing causation. It's difficult to us to not assume that we became in the way we are because there was some driving meaning that sort of led to that, some causes that, 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 that it had to be like that or inherent reasons that mean that it had to become like that. You know, uh, and, 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 and because these assumptions seem to sort of imply that humans don't really consider and make informed choices, that we're just machines who sort of uh, develop like that. But this is exactly how humans have always been. We've always been active, engaged, conscious actors who are creating our own uh, situations through adult, informed reflection and choices. The idea of of traditional societies like indigenous groups as static, living in these very fixed forms, uh, is a total misunderstanding. And and, uh, you you often find this as kind of this counterpoint to this idea of Western civilization as the crown of uh, of, uh, humanity, which is basically just wrong. If you go and look at these societies, which these baddest of ass anthropologists anthropologists have of course done all over the place, then you find that humans have always been very active, conscious actors in creating their life and their communities. We have always looked at history through the lens of what was available. Say Egyptians and Maya and stuff like that. We see pretty art in stone, monuments, right? And then we've concluded that when these things were made, that was the main thing, that was the main period, you know? Periods that produced pretty durable objects were the ones that were called the classical period, the classical Maya period, or the uh, classical dynasties in Egypt, or whatever. The period before would then be called the 
pre-classical period uh, reduced to a lead-up to that kind of community that produced those, those kind of stone monuments. And then there are interim periods or dark, area, dark ages where the pharaonic dynasties disappear and nothing important seemed to have ever happened. Well, Graeber and Wengro says, something important actually did happen in all the other periods, and that is that people rejected pharaonic dynasties. And the fact that they didn't produce pretty statues, does that necessarily mean that they led less content lives, that broad populations were less happy? No. In fact, there may be reason to believe that these were periods of greater equality and perhaps popular participation in decision-making, these kind of things. Which, by the way, is something that you see with great regularity through huge swaths of human history. People seem to sometimes move into more autocratic forms and sometimes into forms that resemble what we would call democracy and parliamentarism. And here comes the bomb. The fucking bomb. The part of this book that, you know, when I listened to it on audiobook, like bringing my kids to school and whatnot, then I couldn't continue. I had to kind of stop the audiobook and lead these debates with myself. Like, but, but this means that, oh, but everything we thought that, it, this is the part of history that just changes. Well, wait, you know, I think this is a piece that challenges the foundation, foundational self-image of the Western civilization. So if you are a person who have a healthy, healthy critical defense against stuff like conspiracy theories and that kind of shit, then you're likely to, to write this off. No, no, you know, people say all kinds of crazy shit about history. Like Jesus was educated and learned meditation in the monastery in Tibet and Africans colonized Mesoamerica and ancient Egyptians had spaceships and Aztecs performed bypass heart operations and Vikings people settled in Mexico and the prophet Ezekiel describes a UFO landing and you know and you can read fucking astronomy out of I don't know you know star clusters and supernovas out of some scribbly lines and some bronze age object and, and so on and so forth you know when I first heard about this this appeared to me to be one of those kind of things but just remember that the guys who present this are like the cutting edge of the cutting edge of contemporary cultural scholarship we're talking about Yale professors, not about some hippie New Age hoopleheads who came across some book that you should really, really read. You know? And they give us, I think, a completely alternative root story to enlightenment, parliamentarism, democracy, and these things. This one swept me off my legs. Here goes. <laughs> Europeans have always looked at their own history for the roots of their thinking, right? There is this assumption that history of ideas is generated by dusty white scholars in dusty white libraries reading what other dusty white scholars wrote millennia earlier. This is a weirdly over-academic assumption which is totally disproven by history. Many authors and thinkers, you know, they introduce new thoughts in Europe and they're completely ex explicit. Let's build our state administration after a Chinese model. And voila, they do that. And they seem to then, it's, and then they suddenly seem to start remembering that apparently four thousand years ago, some other Europeans did something of that sort, and that's where uh, that's where we got that bit. And that is the whitewashing part of it. So here it is: the idea of democracy, parliamentarism, equality for the law, egalitarianism, and so on. 
that actually wasn't something that we Euro descendants got from ancient Athens, from the Greeks, like we've all learned in school. No? Graeber and Wengro, they suggest that when you read Enlightenment thinking, the actual Enlightenment thinkers, they often say that they got it from Native Americans, which Euro Europeans then sort of dismissed by the assumption that when or so or whatever, you know, when they said that, then that was just some sort of noble, savage, convenient literary motive in order to be able to voice a social criticism. Uh, so, so they use this perspective to basically switch, switch back to the idea that Enlightenment was really a result of dusty white scholars in dusty white libraries reading what other dusty white scholars wrote millennia earlier, right? In actual fact, Graeber and Wingrove shows us that there was a very intense cultural encounter that took place through the 17th century between French Jesuits uh, and the peoples of the North American Northeastern woodlands. Jesuit missionary strategy was basically uh, that I learned some classical rhetoric and then I have a logical debate with someone where I convince you that I'm right and you're wrong um, and then you become a Christian. However, they found that Iroquois-speaking and Algonquin-speaking peoples in the uh, northeastern part of America were very difficult to convince. Part of the reason was that they had a culture based on parliamentarism, and they were extremely adept in leading uh, logical arguments, because they did it all the time. In public spaces, people met and spoke to each other and figured out how to run things. These peoples had a quite intense cultural encounter in this historical situation. And the Native Americans formulated what Graeber and Wengro call, uh, calls the indigenous critique of European, mainly French, civilization. This critique had stereotype aspects, uh, and that regularly happens when humans uh, interact. They come to see each other as these sort of mirroring opposites. A little bit like what you see between Californians and, and, and uh, New Yorkers, or what you see between uh, Germanic-speaking Northern Europeans and uh, Romance-speaking Southern Europeans. Right? And something like this happened, this counter-image things happened between Native Americans and the French. So what did these Americans like the Haudenosaunee, what did they say about the French? Well, they perceived them as barbarians, unable to conduct the simplest logical dialogue without interrupting each other and shouting and screaming, and they were dishonest and greedy and subjected to some deeply unjust social systems. You know, they all seem to be slaves, basically, to, to their leaders and to this particular monarch thing. They all they seem to worship money, yet to have this deeply pathological relation to money. If one of them starves on the street, the others just walk, walk on like animals. You know, if a caribou elk, you know, that will walk on even if one of them broke its leg or something. Now, this criticism of European civilization might not be entirely fair, and it might appear a bit rough on the edges and stereotyping, but the reason is that it's formulated not by the wise sons of nature or anything of that sort, but by humans, by people with all their faults, faults and idiosyncrasies and so on and so forth. And people sometimes tend to see and to cast and to talk about each other in these opposing ways. Now, these debates in which this indigenous criticism was formulated are the first time in European history where equality, freedom, you know, 
even gets conceptualized. These concepts did not exist before at all. They were just not there. Equality, for instance, it was not a thing because hierarchy was assumed to be basically a foundational state of the world as God created it. At this time, Native Americans sometimes went to Europe, they spoke to the French, and there were meetings where intellectual would meet with some Native American diplomat or something like that, and, and then they would talk about, uh, considered, uh, uh, you know, because a whole new world of perspectives had been open. Also remember that this was a time before racism really took off. So Europeans uh, would have been less prejudiced against non-whites uh, as uh, equal uh, conversation part partners than what happened later when, when racism started to be uh, consolidated. So these dialogues, they were popularized. Particularly, uh, a Huron Wendat intellectual and statement, uh, statesman named Muskrat, who might be one of the most important intellectuals in modern Occidental history because he formulated the indigenous critique very eloquently and the, and the dialogues in which he, he, did, he did that became published and became a bestseller all over Europe. It became hugely influential, right? And guess what? These American debate culture made Europeans emulated. French intellectuals, they stopped behaving like European intellectuals and write complex treatises, you know, for one another, you know, with half-page sentences for you know, to put in the dusty libraries. And they basically started developing knowledge the Haudenosaunee way. They started sitting in circles, smoking tobacco, and talking about stuff like egalitarianism, freedom, and the unnatural ailments of the monarchical structure of the world. Graeber and Wengrow, they launched the suggestion that Montesquieu was directly inspired by the thinking of a diplomat from the Osage nation, they had a long intellectual history of reflecting on their political uh, organization, their constitutional situation. Uh, and Graeber and Wengrow, they suggest pretty convincingly that the main voice in modern political thinking, Montesquieu, was basically inspired by this Osage intellectual who visited Paris and probably participated in these sort of debates at the time uh, where Montesquieu was also in Paris. So this means that the Enlightenment ideals that we are so proud of as Europeans, and uh, they are basically a result of European intellectual reception of and reflection on the indigenous criticism of the autocratic European culture. <laughs> right? When we practice democracy, parliamentarism, freedom of speech and all that stuff, when we value freedom and equality, and this is because our culture has taken to heart, at some point, main values of uh, indigenous American culture. Basically, we are the heirs to Muskrat, the Huron, the Haudenosaunee, and other Native Americans more than we are the heirs to Pericles of ancient Athens, you know, which is what uh, the whitewashing of history has taught us. Graeber Wengro they then turned their eye to Native American political history, where there was this city-state civilization that emerged around a millennia ago. We don't know its name, but we call it Cahokia. It emerged, became really big, but then it disappeared. 
the authors here, they remark that, uh, that it, it was completely abandoned at some point. And Americans decided to organize themselves in a completely different way. Uh, uh, a series of parliamentarist republics emerged in the immediate era, uh, area, the Choctaw, Cherokee, Chickasaw Creek and Seminole, who replaced what is called the Mississippian culture. Uh, but in fact, it seems that North American totemism could have been a response uh, 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 from what Graeber and Wengro call free peoples in order to basically have some sort of continent-wide social networking. People in pre-colonial North America were able to move rather a lot through the totemic system. A person could move almost across the continent and still find kin through the totemic system. So if you come from the Great Lakes, Lakes region and you move to the Mississippi, then you still find beaver clans and, and so on, which will take you in as a brother, right? And this also means that, that, that people actually move quite a lot and, and uh, you sometimes see that hunter-gatherer groups are actually rather cosmopolitan. They're very composed. It's not just that this small group of close kin. Um, a similar system uh, has worked in Australia uh, and they, they basically suggest that these parliamentarist cultures of the American East uh, were basically part of response to the autocracy that Americans did try out in Cahokia but then decided to reject in order to establish more decentralized parliamentarist modes of organizing themselves that are linked through trans-ethnic totemic bonds to others uh, throughout uh, the continent. Now, what does this mean for the construction of Euro-traditional knowledge today and the recovery of Euro-traditional knowledge? I think, first, it gives us some important tools to detach Euro-traditionalism from conservatism. Conservatism is the idea that the status quo is the best thing. This also means that conservatism, paradoxically, actually changes quite a lot. European conservatives in the 17th centuries, you know, uh, at, at the time when European progressives started being inspired by American, Native American politics, conservatives, they strongly believed and articulated the idea that freedom was the most detrimental co concept for the fabric of society. And it kept these Americans, you know, encased in sinful barbarism, you know. Today, you know, uh, a conservative like Jordan Peterson, he listens to Led Zeppelin, you know. It's very different kinds of conservatism. And, uh, but um, a lot of people uh, uh, choose that kind of thinking, I think, the conservative, for instance, Jordan Peterson, because if you want to be constructive in your thinking uh, about the world, I think it's some of the only stuff there is. Leftist thinking has become so deconstructing that it has lost its relation to the future itself. And it's self-evident that those who build owns the future. A guy like Jordan Peterson, conservative, he builds, you know, whatever you think about his, his ideas. I have some very serious po uh, problems and criticism to look towards a lot of stuff he's saying, but he builds. And I think the, his, the view of history and humanity, culture, freedom, equality that uh, Graeber and Wengro suggests can give us pointers that can root building back in progressive thinking. Perhaps it can teach us that, well, you know, Americans, they let Cahokia crumble 
you know, they dispersed into land connected to Temex forms of creating community. Well, if they could do it, so can we. We live in Cahokia, right? This narrative, I think it strongly enforces my notion, for instance, that totem, totemism could be a possible alternative to the state coherence ideologies in our context, such as nationalism. And I think that can give us hope and pointers to how we can move beyond, for instance, the rather dysfunctional national states that are completely incapable of dealing with the biggest problems that humanity has ever faced, which is that uh, we're facing climate change and biodiversity collapse on an unimaginable scale. I hope all this made sense, and uh, please do go and read this amazing book, and see you around. My name is Rune Jane Rasmussen. The work that I'm sharing with you on this channel focuses on recovering Euro-traditional animist knowledge. This is the fruit of a life of study and research all over the world, and I hold a doctorate from the oldest university in the Nordic region, but I'm choosing to popularize rather than to focus on academic publication. Conventional institutions, however, have yet to warm up properly to my perspective, so if you appreciate what I do, then please do consider that I also need to feed my family. Uh, for the price of less than one beer per month, you can become a patron supporter, or you can head over to my web shop and enter into exchange relation with me. You can also give single donations to my PayPal account, or if you have contact with someone that might help me project this incredibly important perspective to the world, then do drop me a PM. And uh, remember also to clickety-click and subscribe, follow, share, comment and all that. Thank you very much. Yeah.